Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, September 27, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Working from the Sarah Abbott Studios is Sarah Abbott. Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. This is a, a rare Tuesday podcast. You know, after we had the Monday podcast, but you've got travel on Friday. Taylor's overseas someplace. I just following him on Twitter and he's putting up pictures of Italy and other places. He's kind of going crazy over there. I know. I'm so jealous. Every time I go on Twitter, I see this like new amazing picture of him and his wife somewhere super cool. Oh, and you're going to travel on Friday, right? You have some trip for yourself. Yes, I'm going on a girl's trip to Seattle. One of my best friends is expecting a baby. So this is the last hurrah before the baby comes. <laughs> awesome. Well, maybe you can, uh, you know, give me a wave as you pass overhead from my home in Montana. I'm Buster only. Uh, speaking of traveling, the Atlanta Braves uh, traveled to the White House on Monday before their uh, evening game against the Washington National Joe Biden, the president, honored the Braves. Here's what he had to say. Uh, welcome to the White House, the 2021 <laughs> world champion Atlanta Braves. I was telling the, the guys in the, back in the other side of the building that um, I married a Philly girl. <laughs> And uh, she's smarter than I am, and she's a hell of a lot better looking. And uh, like every Philly fan, she's convinced she knows more about everything in sports than anybody else in the <laughs> And these guys beat the Phillies last night. I love them. Anyway. I have to be careful how uh, nice I am to these guys today, especially since last night. I was texting with some of the Braves last night, and they were talking about what a cool experience is it, it, that was, uh, regardless of your politics, uh, to, to be in the White House, a place of history, to have that moment really cool. They went from there to the ballpark where they faced the Nationals, and they took care of business. And he drives one deep down the right field line on the first pitch, right on down the line, and it hits the pole. Two-run homer, Matt Olson stepped to the plate, looking to seek and destroy. And it's another homer for the Braves against Washington. That was from 680, the fan, and that's all the Braves needed because Bryce Elder was awesome, throwing a shutout. Bryce Elder, uh, in the draft uh, in which Spencer Strider was took in 2020, the Braves in the fourth round, uh, Dana Brown, their scouting director, told me this. We're trying to decide, do we take Strider or do we take Elder? They chose Strider thinking that they'd have no shot at Elder in the next round. And lo and behold, he was still there. And now he's having making an impact in the big leagues. The Braves now one game behind the New York Mets. We've got them on Sunday Night Baseball this weekend. This is the great race that's going on uh, in Major League Baseball as we come down the stretch. The Orioles are still alive. Cedric Mullins having quite a year. 
The pitch on the way and a swing and a deep fly ball right field. Verdugo going back on the track and this one is headed into the bullpen. It is gone and Cedric Mullins a leadoff home run for the Orioles to make it one to nothing in the first inning. That from WBAL, the Orioles went on to win the game 14-8. Canada uh, confirmed Monday that non-citizens entering the country, including professional athletes, will no longer be required to be vaccinated against COVID-19 beginning in October. So, you know, we've seen situations where uh, teams have had two, three, four players not eligible to play in games in Toronto. That's not going to be an issue anymore. And we've seen in specifically the Tampa Bay Rays when they've gone to Toronto, that uh, you know, that they have not been available. That's not going to be an issue. Robbie Ray, uh, to one of the top starters for the Seattle Mariners, he wasn't available. Now that's not going to be an issue. So for uh, the playoffs, this change will have an impact. The Blue Jays and the Yankees last night playing in Toronto. And in the bottom of the fourth inning, with the Yankees leading two to nothing, Toronto tied the score. Toronto down. 2-0. They've got the bases loaded, one out. Hernandez smokes it. Straight away center field. Bader back at the wall. He leaps into the air, and it's off the top of the fence. Bichette races towards the plate. Vladdy's right behind him to tie the game. It's a 2-2 ball game. That from Sportsnet 590, the fan. Of course, all eyes continue to be on Aaron Judge as everyone waits to see if he's going to hit a home run number 61-62 and set a new American League record. Uh, First base was open when he came to the plate in the top of the 10th inning, and here's what happened. And Judge has intentionally walked. Now, you could get mad at the manager all you want, but he's playing for something now. If Alex Cora did this, you have a, a real reason to get angry, but he's trying to win this game to get into the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue uh, with uh, walking a man who's having one of the greatest offensive seasons that we've ever seen. That was Michael K. David Cohn on the Yes Network. It was still 2-2 going to the bottom of the 10th inning. First base was open. Alejandro Kirk at the plate. And Aaron Boone, the Yankees manager, decided to not intentionally walk Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And this is what happened. The pitch. Swing and a line drive. Base hit into left field. The Blue Jays are going to win it. Bisio scores. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. delivers in the 10th. The Blue Jays race onto the field, celebrating a game winner. Yeah, it was a great game last night. A playoff atmosphere. We're going to be talking with Dan Schulman, play-by-play man on Blue Jays television. And, of course, longtime play-by-play man on ESPN television and radio uh, and ask him about Aaron Boone, about the Blue Jays, about the atmosphere last night. Aaron Boone was asked about whether or not he figured Judge would be intentionally walked in the top of the 10th. Once we saw Mesa up, you know, we figured he he was getting ready for for Rizzo there. And then, um, you know, then the next one is, is it going to be a first and second situation? Then as soon as they went to the mound, you know, you know, we knew they were going to get Mesa to walk them. And um, so, yeah, we figured that. Here's Aaron Judge. You never know. I don't think I've been hitting lefties well all year, so you never you never know what you know analytics is going to say. But uh, I think once they made the move, I kind of had a feeling. But you got you got to stay locked in in that position. You can't you know think you're going to get walked and all of a sudden you're you know, stepping in the box facing 98. So uh, yeah, I try to stay locked in until they tell me to move on. Sarah, what else you got? 
All right, everyone, be sure to check out the Dominique Foxworth show. We had a great episode out this morning where we're recapping the Monday night game. And also be sure to check out Kyle Brandt's basement. He has on Josh Allen every Tuesday. So today should be an interesting conversation. And be sure to check out all of our other NFL content. We have an amazing slate of shows. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals and the hottest tickets. Experience it live. You can now stream the most Major League Baseball games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your Major League Baseball games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. That's D-I-R-E-C-T-V.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip codes and requires choice package. Dan Schulman, play-by-play man on ESPN Radio this fall. You'll hear him on the playoffs. You'll hear him on the World Series. And, of course, you see him on Toronto Blue Jays uh, broadcast as play-by-play man. And he was at the game last night. A great game, Dan. Yankees, Blue Jays going down to the bottom of the 10th inning. Stars involved. Managerial decisions. Everyone watching Aaron Judge. It felt like a playoff game, Buster. It, it really, really did. I mean, the Yankees had a magic number of one to clinch the division. The Blue Jays are trying to clinch a playoff spot. Aaron Judge had 60 homers. It was a big, lively crowd. And then all of the strategy in the 10th inning, as you talked about, an intentional walk on one side, no intentional walk on the other side. Um, and uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. coming up with the big hit. Uh, in a game that the Blue Jays really needed. They would dearly love to be home for the first round of the playoffs, and a win last night's another step in that direction. I'm going to ask you about Aaron Judge, but first uh, about the Blue Jays. Uh, It feels like in a year in which there have been so many inconsistencies where you're trying to figure out what's the bedrock of this team, like they're kind of coming together as we get down the stretch here. Yeah, I think that's fair. They've never really had a stretch buster where – Offense and pitching have clicked at the same time for more than a few days. You know, there have been times where the offense has been great and they look like last year. And then there have been times where the offense cooled off a little bit and the bullpen carried them or then the starting pitching carried them for a while. But it does feel like they're closer to everything coming together now than they have before. They're a very good team and I think they're a very dangerous team. Um, should they get into the playoffs, which looks like it'll it'll be a formality. Uh, They're without a couple of players, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Santiago Espinal. They're on the IL, but their depth has come through. You know, Whit Merrifield has had some big games for them. Danny Jansen has had some big games for them. Uh, And I think they feel good about things. If they can get, and maybe last night's game-winning hit is something, if they can get Vladdy really going, uh, you know, like he did last year, that's a game-changer for them. That that gives them an Aaron Judge-type bat, um, in their lineup. And I think they feel very good with Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman up at the top of the rotation. Yeah. And I feel like that uh, the way their path is beginning to take shape in the postseason, they're going to host the first round in, in Toronto, it looks like, which would be awesome. We know how great the crowds are there. Uh, and then the second round, if you catch the Houston Astros, who I view as the prohibitive favorites in the American League, 
because of how good their pitching is. I want to catch them in a best of five. Yeah. So it's interesting. The Blue Jays have lost the tiebreaker to both Seattle and Tampa Bay. So they've got to finish ahead of them in order to finish ahead of them, if you know what I mean. So I think they're two and a half up on the Rays, three up on the Mariners. If so, you know, driving home last night, doing the math, like I'm sure you would, if you were in my situation, if the Blue Jays go four and four, the rest of the way, Seattle has to go eight and two. Tampa Bay has to go seven and two. I think my math is right on that. It's not impossible. It looks like the Blue Jays will host, but it's not impossible. But the other thing is, say they get down to the last day of the season and they're a game up. Do they throw Alec Manoa in that game to get home field? That has been a big conversation piece here because John Schneider uh, has said a, a lot of different things are under consideration for that last day. So if you're a Blue Jays fan, you want them two games clear of Tampa Bay and Seattle heading into the last day of the season, just so there's no temptation to use Alec Manoa. Obviously, for them to have a chance to win a playoff, their best chance to win a playoff series is to have Alec Manoa start game one of that series. So uh, the funny thing about the Blue Jays in Houston, too, and, and I don't love this, they played all six of their games against each other in April on back-to-back weekends. They have not seen each other for five months. But, um, you know, again, the Blue Jays are one of these teams, they could go two and out, and they could get hot, and they could roll people. Like, they've got that much talent. So, um, but I'm hoping it's at home. 45,000 people at Rogers Center sounds like fun to me. All right. One of the big talking points uh, in a, once we get into these rounds of the postseason will be about the right-handed nature of the Toronto lineup. And, and if yep. they face Houston, that potentially be an issue. Toronto's, uh, excuse me, Houston's loaded with right-handed starters. How, how do you see the Blue Jays adjusting to that? I, I remember at the time that uh, uh, at the trade deadline, we talked about how to that point, and, this, and I'm sure this held, uh, the Blue Jays probably had seen the most number of matchups uh, that were could deemed unfavorable uh, without the know. platoon advantage. Yes, right, and, exactly. By a mile, by a mile, it's not even right. close. Um, I think they kind of are who they are. To be honest with you, now there are certain times Rymel Tapia is in the lineup. There are certain times Kevin Biggio is in the lineup. But if Lourdes Gurriel Jr. gets hot, and if Whit Merrifield stays hot, you could have an all right hand hitting lineup in playoff games. You really could. You could have Alejandro Kirk DHing and Danny Jansen catching in some games. Um, you know, the other thing with Houston, you're going to see, and, and, and we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but you know, you would see a Fromber Valdez, right? So then you would probably stack your righties anyways. But um, the Blue Jays, again, they kind of are who they are. And late in games, we have seen John Schneider uh, be very aggressive and creative with his bench moves. They've got a fair amount of flexibility. So you could see a Tapia come off the bench, a Biggio come off the bench. Uh, They've got Jackie Bradley Jr. and Bradley Zimmer, who are both left-handed bats. But for the most part, they come in for defense or pinch running, that sort of thing. The Jays kind of have to rely on their guys. And and if you're a righty with a good slider and you're locating that slider away, down and away from right-handed batters, and you're getting a couple of friendly calls from the umpire on the outside corner – The Blue Jays have to be very disciplined to either take those pitches or drive them to right center instead of rolling over and pulling ground balls. So um, it's something they've dealt with at times. But you know what? You look at the end of the year and they're one of the top five offenses in baseball, even though they're so right handed heavy. It's a week basically since Aaron Judge hit a home run. Everyone's watching him. You know, we talked on Sunday Night Baseball about that moment of silence. The Reese McGuire was telling me about how when the pitcher goes in, uh, goes into his windup, the murmurs in the crowd absolutely die out to the degree that he could hear the swish of the bat from Judge on Saturday as going through until the foul ball. 
Um, and look, I've, I've seen reporters do this. I've done it where we talk about, yeah, it looks like he's, he's stressed out a little bit. I mean, forget what I say. I'm not even on the field. The other day I had a conversation with Xander Bogarts uh, before Sunday's game, who's of course going for the batting title against judge. And I asked him if he and judge had talked about the batting title and you know, Bogarts personality, so warm and gregarious. And he goes, no, we haven't talked about it at all. He said, normally when he gets to second base, we kind of, you know, give each other a hard time and have fun. He goes, he's not doing that now. And, and Xander's perspective was he was really focused. And, he, and then he caught himself. He goes, that's not a negative. He's just got a lot on his shoulders right yeah. now. Uh, I've heard from folks in the, in the you know, Yankees dugout that, you know, during the games, it's quiet in there as well. Like it's disturbingly quiet where they feel like everyone is like the fans watching what's going on. You saw Judge last night. What do you think? I mean, I thought he had some good at bats. You know, his first at bat, he hit, hit a rocket to right. He just didn't get it in the air. It was a line drive single. He had, uh, you know, I saw on Sunday night, he had some good at bats. He had a double. He had a fly ball to deep left. He just didn't hit the ball out of the ballpark. So, you know, only Aaron Judge is good enough where you could say, um, it, and I heard it on a sportscast yesterday. The home run drought is now six games. Only Aaron Judge could have the word <laughs> drought in, in, in six games, you know, like not even Jordan Alvarez or Vladdy or Schwarber. Are you saying six games is a drought? But listen, he's a human being like the rest of us. And yes. if it's not on his mind every single time he comes to the plate, then he's a lot uh, stronger mentally than 99.99% of people. It, I, I would imagine it's a little bit different on the road. And, and you know, what you were saying about the uh, the eerie silence at Yankee Stadium, it's kind of like a free throw to win a basketball game at the end of a game on your home court when everybody gets quiet. It's a little bit different in Toronto, obviously. And, and I know from people I know and people on Twitter and et, et cetera, like some people are all in on this and some people are like, hey, man, this is a Blue Jays broadcast and we're trying to clinch a playoff spot here. Like, you know, some people are that. Some people view Roger Maris as the home run champ. Some people view Barry Bonds as the home run champ. So there's a lot going on here. So in Toronto last night, it was obviously a different vibe than it was um, in, in the Bronx. There was, I would say, you know, polite Canadian applause when he came up the first time. And after that, there wasn't much of anything until they intentionally walked up in the 10th. And then the Yankee fans who probably made up I don't know, 15% of the crowd, they were booing quite vociferously. So, um, but he'll get it done. He's too good not to. And, and even if he doesn't, he's already hit 60 home runs this year. He's had a, you know, once in a decade or once in a generation kind of season. I, I think he should be applauded for everything he's done. And that's not even talking about the defense or the base running or playing center field when they needed to. And I saw him last night sign autographs for several minutes in Toronto uh, behind the plate during BP. You know, he's he's obviously one of the great uh, players in the game and one of the great ambassadors for the game, whether he winds up with 60, 61 or 62. I was texting back and forth with uh, David Cohn uh, during the broadcast. And I mentioned, uh, you know, I texted him. And I said, you saw him take fastballs from Gossman in the first pitch, and which was different than what we had seen in the week before. And I said, it feels like he's, He's trying to like reset and get back. And, and David said, yeah, he's trying to normalize things. And you can see in his plate appearance, and you're right, he had absolutely terrific plate appearances. And I, I think you're right, too. It's inevitable that he hits 61, that he hits 62. Um, you know, hope for Roger Maris Jr. that it happens for his parents, yeah. you know. And I'm sure he feels a little pressure knowing that those guys are there. We had a great conversation last week with Michael Kay, Carl Ravitch was on Friday talking about the call. Uh, and you and I have talked about the situation before. 
how you as play-by-play men uh, prepare for that moment. If you can just run through your thoughts. Yeah. Well, you worked with me uh, for many years, so you know I don't script anything. And um, it, it, it's also, and I've talked to a few people about this, you know, it's a different thing for Michael Kay than it is for Carl Ravage than it is for me. One's a home broadcaster, one's a national, one's a visiting guy. So um, I certainly will give it the attention it deserves. Um, but it, it's not exactly the same for me as if, say, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was in this position. And I think if you talk to Michael, he would say he gets that. It's different than for him if that it's Judge and it's not a visiting player. You know, it's also late September, and these two teams are rivals and don't like each other very much. And both are playing for a lot at this moment, obviously. Um, and it's in Toronto, which means I don't know what the reaction would be in the crowd. In the Bronx, it's easy to know what the reaction would be. In Toronto, again, would there be – the Yankee fans would be cheering, but they're the minority. What would everybody else be doing? So um, I, I think – and I, I've thought about it. I want to make sure I'm in the moment. Like you're not going to catch me uh, telling a story about, boy, Alejandro Kirk's really framing the ball well tonight while, while Judge is at the plate. I don't want to – that's my worst nightmare is getting caught turning to Buck Martinez and saying, you know, Buck, Alejandro Kirk, and then whack, and Judge hits the ball out of the ballpark. So uh, I'm going to be locked in the moment. And I think the most important uh, thing for me, Buster, is just to make sure I get the important facts out. And the important facts – to me, there's three parts. It's the number 61 – it's the phrase ties the American League record, and it's Roger Maris's name. Those are the three things. Those three things will be in the call. How exactly I word that and in what order, I don't know. You know, he could lead off the game on the first pitch tonight and tie the record, or he could hit a 12th inning home run that breaks a tie. And those are different home runs, too. So I think I want to make sure I get those three bits of information in. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is more of a moment for Michael Kay and John Sterling because he's a Yankee. I know you'll have fun with it. I know you well enough to know you'll do a great job. And I, I can't wait to hear it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in October, wherever we may be. Absolutely. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employees agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. That's Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Todd Radom, the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world. Uh, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, congratulations. That was you who was honoring the Atlanta Braves yesterday at the White House, correct? <laughs> I'm not sure I know what you mean, Buster. I've never actually set foot in the White House. What are we talking about here? <laughs> uh, well, you're the chief executive. It, it feels like. Ah, you, you, all right. It, well, I, I operate from an undisclosed remote location. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Uh, you, know, you and I have had uh, conversations about this off air uh, about how uniform changes are done in baseball and the timing of it, because at some point, Probably in the next three months, there's going to be some unveiling. A team will have a press conference of a couple of players that'll uh, model some uniforms. Can you just walk through the process of that, and 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 also if you've heard anything around the edges, because I know you can't reveal uh, you know anything specifically that you've heard, but around the edges, what uh, what you're hearing about uniforms in 2023? Well, Buster, to your first question, these uniform changes are generally worked on two years, a year and a half, two years in advance. But we live in a world of pandemic, uh, you know, supply chain issues, and things have really just uh, gotten turned over in a weird way the last couple of years. We've also had Nike uh, come along as the on-field uniform supplier of Major League Baseball, and that has affected not only the on-field look, but the look of logos, and it really has, I think, uh, tapped into a different kind of sensibility in the um, in in terms of what the fans expect to think about it. Uh, we now have more uniforms than we have ever had in our lifetimes, not only in baseball, but I always point out the NBA where we don't have home or road designations. Every team has something like four sets of uniforms. This is the way things are going. So everything is kind of out the window. These things take place well in advance and they are geared toward the retail cycle. Also, when you talk about unveilings, these unveilings are generally, I mean, it used to be time to coincide with a team's winter festival or caravan. Uh, the Minnesota Twins traveling the upper Midwest are going to unveil uh, a new logo or uniforms, this kind of thing, um, you know, to coincide with that. Well, let's think retail and let's think about hitting the holiday season in a big way, which has been difficult the last couple of years. Yeah, uh, no doubt. And so you're you're expecting sometime in, say, early December or maybe around Black Friday, perhaps? I think that yeah. after Thanksgiving, <laughs> I think that the period between Thanksgiving and uh, let's say the second or third, probably second week in December, we will see some changes. And if you've observed the last couple of years, we haven't had a lot of changes, not at all. And again, this has to do with Nike coming in. It is not, you know, it's it wasn't possible for them. My understanding is at least to uh, just kind of get a clean start. There's a transitional moment 
Um, and that's what we've been seeing. But here they are a couple of years in. And I think we're going to see some more things. I know we will see some more things. Now, you're on top of this the way I'm on, I'm on top of every pitch with Aaron Judge. Uh, what things around the edges have you been hearing about? Well, at least one team is going to be uh, rebranding in a pretty significant way, I would say. You've got a bunch of teams coming online with their City Connect uniforms next year, uh, which now is kind of part and parcel of the uh, of the baseball landscape. We've come to expect this. Um, you know, uh, I think that that look toward those things. And, of course, as always, a bunch of uh, secondary uniform changes, commemorative sleeve patches, that kind of thing. But uh, but the big one, you know, we really haven't seen a, a massive team rebrand in a couple of years. Think about the Padres. Think about the Rangers going into 2020. Auspicious timing. New ballpark. The whole thing. Well, 60 games with no fans in the stands to speak of. So uh, things are going to be a little bit different going into this offseason. So we'll get to this week's weekly quiz in a moment. Uh, Taylor is so, uh, I think, despondent over his performance this year that he went to Europe, and he will not be part of this week's quiz. It'll just be Sarah and I. But first, let's talk about this week's Phantom franchise. So, Buster, the Cleveland Indians stumbled from the late 50s and early 1960s, and they were a moribund franchise in 1964, the year you and I were born. They drew only 653,000 fans to cavernous Cleveland Stadium that year, a ballpark with 78,000 seats, and claimed to have lost a total of $1.2 million in 1963. What's more, the Indians were a middle-of-the-pack club in a 10-team American League, one that fans on the road didn't much care for either, as witnessed by the fact that on October 1st of that year, the Red Sox and Indians drew a crowd of exactly 306 fans to their game at Fenway Park. The Indians' lease was expiring at year's end, and they were looking at other options. The groundwork for a potential move began in earnest that summer. Several cities came calling, but Seattle quickly vaulted to the front of the pack. Seattle was in the process of planning for a multi-purpose domed stadium, which would eventually become the King Dome. City officials and civic leaders embarked upon an all-out drive to lure the tribe to the Pacific Northwest, which included a wide-ranging season ticket campaign and generous incentives to make the move. The Indians would have played at minor league Six Stadium, which would later become the home of the Seattle Pilots for one season. It was to have been expanded from its 12,000 seats, and it was offered up rent-free. The mayor of Seattle held a news conference in September saying that he was negotiating directly with the club. President Lyndon Johnson visited Seattle and was presented with a baseball, symbolic of the city's confidence in a major league future. Johnson was said to be, quote, slightly baffled by the gesture. (laughs) (laughs) You can only imagine how that went. I don't think, just an aside, I don't think Lyndon Johnson was slightly anything. (laughs) No, 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 all out there. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) That same month, Indians ownership turned down what was reported to be a $6.5 million offer to move the team from Cleveland to Oakland, which was finishing their new stadium, today's Oakland Coliseum. Business and government leaders in Ohio began to push back aggressively, embarking upon their own season ticket drive and pushing forth various subsidies to keep the team from leaving. The Indians, seemingly playing one city off the other, sat and waited and listened. 
The Seattle Times said that a formal announcement was imminent following the upcoming World Series, and a $1 million a year radio offer was supposedly on the table, just waiting for the Indians in Seattle. Team president Gabe Paul, who owned 20% of the club, flew from the World Series to Seattle to have a look at Six Stadium, accompanied by team owner William R. Daly. The ballpark apparently did not impress, as Daly was quoted as saying, it's as close to a major league park as any minor league stadium I have ever seen. <laughs> Damning by faint praise, Buster. Simultaneously, Seattle's ticket campaign was floundering, and the Indians began to scramble for alternative cities to move to. Paul and Daly traveled to on to Dallas and to Oakland, with one newspaper report saying that they looked, quote, like a pair of bachelors who have their sweetheart all picked out but want one more look at the field. While Seattle's efforts were failing, Cleveland's were ascending. Sensing the impending loss of their club, Clevelanders stepped things up, putting deposits down for season tickets. The city offered up a 10-year lease with significant concessions, and on October 16th, the Indians' board of directors met and decided to keep the team in Cleveland, where, of course, they now play as the Guardians. But today, however, we imagine a world with a Seattle Indians, and they are this week's Phantom franchise. Yeah. <sighs> That, what a what a great bit of history there. Uh, so as you were talking, I was thinking you made reference to the 78,000 seat ballpark. And I was thinking to myself, my God, are we spoiled? Like, you know, now anytime a new ballpark opens, uh, everyone talks about the fan amenities and the concession stands and the choice of food. Can you imagine? I, I can't even think what it would have been like to attend a game uh, where you've got 78,000 people between the bathrooms and the food, Todd, I, I, it's it's mind-boggling to me. Well, Buster, I can recall walking up for a home opener, and I'm thinking about this, and I think it was 1987, in Cleveland, walking across this unpaved, muddy parking lot, what seemed like eight miles from the ballpark, desolate, down by the lake, into this cavernous stadium. It was cold. The hot dogs were cold. And I think I've told this story before. I remember getting a hot dog, unwrapping the foil, crunching down in this cold hot dog, and chewing on bones. So that oh. encapsulated the Cleveland Stadium experience. And one last thing, I have four seats from that ballpark here. And the reason I have them is because when they knocked the place down in the late 90s, the seats were really cheap. And they're these great old wooden seats. And they came with bubble gum attached to the bottom, and the 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 uh, the arms are rusting and all that. And what they did is they just they just like chainsawed off the the end seats, so they had so many to go around that they could destroy one out of every four or whatever it was. But uh, they're sitting here about ten feet away from me. That's that. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine how in 2022 with how spoiled we are, how fans would react. That's Nobody right. would stand for bony hot dogs, Buster. No, I, I don't. Th oh, my <laughs> goodness. I don't know if I can go through with the quiz. Yeah, okay, let's do it. All right. Uh, this week's quiz, Todd, what do you got? All right. Here we go, guys. 18-year-old Robert Winborn caught Hank Aaron's 700th career home run on July 21st, 1973. So here's this week's question. What did he receive? in exchange for the milestone baseball? Was it A, a Sears Kenmore washer-dryer set? Was it B, 700 silver dollars? Was it C, an all-expenses-paid trip to the 1974 All-Star Game? Or was it D, a 1973 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am car? So, 
winning in exchange for the 700th home run, 1973. Sears, Kenmore, washer, dryer set, 700 silver dollars, an all-expense-paid trip to next year's All-Star Game, or a Pontiac Firebird. So, Sarah, here's the thing. I really do think I have an advantage over you uh, in this quiz because, of course, I grew up in the 70s, and I have some sense of the 70s sensibilities, uh, watching Let, Let's Make a Deal, uh, all the game shows that were going on at that time. And that's why I'm going to pick the washer and dryer. That's I mine. I'm going to pick the washer and dryer. That is like so out there that it has to be A, but I'm going to say C. Well, Buster, you, that is just the height of hubris, pulling the age card. And you're both wrong, by the way, because it was actually <laughs> B. He received 700 silver dollars Wow! in exchange for the ball. This 18-year-old kid who was sitting in the bleachers in Atlanta, and he was reading a book. I have all the details here. And he offered to return the prize back to Hank Aaron to give to his favorite charity. Aaron said, <laughs> kid, keep it. So it was 700 silver dollars, folks. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, well, maybe my misdirection helped me then. Uh, unintentional misdirection for Sarah. Got her off the right answer. All right, Todd, thanks for doing this. Always great to talk with you. All right, guys. Thanks so much. See you later. Alvin Gonzalez covers baseball for ESPN. And Alden, I, I want to ask you about Albert Pujols and 700 and what kind of a scene that was the other day. Uh, before we get to that, let's touch on the what's I think we all agree the best remaining race in baseball, and that is the race for the National Yeast. The Braves win yesterday. The Mets didn't play. So the Braves are one game behind uh, New York as we come down the stretch. Um, what what do you make of that? Where we are and, and maybe the impact? Because, I, boy, you talk about a big step down, a big advantage for the winner of this. They get the first round by, whereas, on the other hand, the loser of that race winds up uh, having to play in the wild card round, you know, having to burn through some pitching, maybe risk yeah. some injury. Uh, you know, and, and you know, for me, that there's a lot at stake as we come down the stretch for these two teams. And Buster, how cool is it that we get Braves Mets this weekend, the final weekend of the Thank regular season? Thank you for season. selling Sunday Night Baseball for me. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it because I'm too much of a, a honk company guy sometimes. Uh, I'm a company man, but you could put that Buster on any streaming service. It didn't matter. I was going to find those games because baseball could not have found a better weekend series than that one with that race. But, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's so compelling because of that layer. I mean, to play a three-game series um, all three days, like back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back before the National League Division Series, that's such a huge disadvantage. And, and I just think, I, I think especially maybe for the Mets, uh, maybe I'm overthinking this, but to burn through Scherzer DeGrom in a short series, I, I look at the Braves as maybe a little deeper of a pitching staff. Um, I think for the Mets especially, it would be tough to play that wild card series before the NLDS. But for any team, I mean, you're just going to be exhausted by the time you roll in. It's interesting. I had this conversation with Justin Turner recently about what would you rather have? Would you rather, I mean, how tough is it going to be to overcome four days with no playing baseball? And he admitted, look, that's a lot. That's a long time to not play baseball. But you'd rather have that than to go through the gauntlet of that three-game series burning through pitching before getting into three more rounds. Well, and especially feels that way because of, of what we're seeing with a 
with the Dodgers rotation, the Mets rotation. If you're the Mets rotation, you got Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom, and when they're at their best, they can beat anybody. You know, Clayton Kershaw, same way. But they all have injury histories, and they've all reached the age where something could happen, and and that would be a huge issue for either one of those teams with their rotations. And I don't know about and DeGrom, too. I mean, he's going to have to be careful because of the injuries that you mentioned, and also he's going to opt out probably at the end of the year. So is right. he really going to be a guy who's going short rest, who's you know going to max out? I mean, maybe. You know, I'm not saying that he wouldn't do that for the team, but I think that's also another thing to consider if you're the Mets and you're looking at Max. We saw that with Max Scherzer during the playoffs last year, right? The, 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 the Dodgers on that. The Dodgers lived that with Max Scherzer last year, and that's why exactly why that was pointed out to me recently. Look at Jacob DeGrom. Is he going to do that for the Mets? He's going to want to get paid too. He doesn't want to get hurt. So that's another thing to consider. All right, so tell me what it was like uh, covering the game in which Albert Pujols hits career homer number 699 and number 700. Oh, it was so cool. It was one of the greatest things I've I've ever experienced, Buster, to be honest. I was fortunate enough to be there for 500. I was there for 600. I was there for 700. And it's amazing to me that Albert Pujols was there for five-plus months. And the impact that he seemed to have with the Dodgers – at times just feels greater than what the impact that he had with the angels for more than nine years. And that's not to take away anything from his stint in Anaheim. I just think that point in his career, who he was, what he did for that team, given how good they were, I think it meant so much. Um, the respect that he had for those Dodgers players, Kershaw and Justin Turner and Mookie Betts and all those guys, they loved him there. And, and I found it really interesting that, during batting practice on Friday, he was chatting with Andrew Friedman and Dave Roberts. And he told them, he's like, look, if it weren't for this place, if it weren't for coming here after the Angels released me, I don't know that I'd be playing in 2022, which means that 700 would not have happened. I think that atmosphere, that clubhouse, and just playing in that stadium, playing in the playoffs for the first time in a long time, I, I think it rejuvenated him. And, and it was just cool for him to have that moment there because number one, it was the only venue where all five of his children could watch him hit 700. So he thought that was really cool. But also those fans, I mean, th those fans grew to love him a and the energy when he came to bat in the third inning and he hit that home run was like any playoff game at Dodger stadium. And you could just feel as he was coming up to bat in the fourth against Phil Bickford, that everybody was waiting on him to do it again. And, and for some reason, Buster, if you remember, he hit number 500 the same night he hit 499. Number 600, it was a grand slam at a big spot in the game. And mm. number 700 was the inning after 699. For some reason, he just has a knack for doing stuff like this when these milestone home runs are coming. Yeah, and for you, the context with, with Albert, you know, not only is what he's done this year, not only what he did with the Dodgers last year, but you covered him when he was with the Angels. Um, and you know, this is, uh, you know, and I have no idea because I was not around the team on a daily basis. I only, you know, heard stories around the edges that he could be kind of a prickly personality on a day to day basis. I don't know if it was like that with teammates, but I think it's so cool that he's had this great uh, time when players with other teams, when folks with other teams, uh, folks, in the media where he felt the, the love in a way that, you know, you wonder if at times it is during his time with the Angels where he just wasn't in a position emotionally to sort of open up to that. I felt the same thing happened with Ichiro. 
Uh, look, when he when Ichiro got traded from the Mariners to the Yankees, there's no doubt there he didn't have a great reputation as a teammate to the degree that before the Yankees made that deal, the Yankees told him, look, are you going to be okay coming over here and being a part-time player? Because they had heard a lot of stuff. And Ichiro said yes. And then the end of his career was kind of rewritten in the same way that I think it is with Albert, where you know he goes to the Yankees. They absolutely loved him as a teammate. He embraced the role they gave for him. He goes to the Marlins. The same thing happens. And guess what? He gets to finish his career with the Mariners. And he's honored. And it was a wonderful finish because it feels like, Alan, that people change like over the course of their lifetime. And I love that that seems to have been uh, what's happened with Albert. Yeah. And one thing that I heard from Angels people when shortly after he joined the Dodgers was, look, there was no way that he was going to accept this part time start Mm -hmm. only against lefties role while he was with the Angels. And whether that's true or not, and I never heard that from Albert's mouth. I think there's something to be said for being the guy on the big contract, right? Being the $240 million guy on the angels and how that sort of pressure can kind of manifest itself. And when you get released from that and you get completely reset, I think there's a factor of like, okay, like my career is winding down. I need to accept something entirely different. And, you know, to the Dodgers credit, They told them up front at that time, they had a really young bench and they were just looking for a veteran guy to come off the bench, pinch hit late in games. Remember the national, the designated hitter was not in the national league and just give you a good at bat. And they thought Albert could do it. And that's what they told them. They're like, look, this is mostly a pinch hitting role. Maybe you'll start some against lefties, but you're not going to play that much. If if you're good with it, we would love to have you. But if not, we're not the team for you. And he's like, and when you tell him that up front, He's going to he embraced it. And when he embraces something, he's going to have a good attitude about it. And I think that was the difference with the Dodgers. With the Angels, that role gradually evolved into it. With the Dodgers, he came in knowing that's what he was going to do. So and I think he took it and ran with it. He had never pinch hit before. He learned how to do that. He learned how to carve out a routine in game to do it. And I think he was just so great with that group. I mean, he already had instant credibility with Justin Turner and Clayton Kershaw. And I think he took on a mentorship role to a level that I don't think he had before in his career with the Dodgers. So I'm going to ask you a question about the the, the milestone home runs last week. And, and I, I want to make this clear. I do not at all mean to diminish what he has accomplished. To me, I've always been fascinated by this because of the respect that I think is built into it. The the issue that I'm going to bring up is the question of whether or not the the Dodgers group pitches for him. This is a longstanding baseball tradition. The story is in 1968, the year that Denny McClain won 30 games. Mickey Mantle came to the plate. He needed a home run to hit a milestone. And Denny McClain grooved on for him, like asked, told him, like, what do you want? Uh, what do you want me to throw you? And Mantle hit a home run off McLean in this great year. When I covered the Orioles in, I think it was 95, they played the Tigers. Lou Whitaker, Alan Trammell, their last games together as teammates in Tiger Stadium. Mike Messina grew pitches to those guys. Like, one, <laughs> absolutely did that. I remember when Todd Helton hit uh, in a milestone home run. I was watching on television. The pitch was Jake Peavy. Uh, and I texted him like, you, you you put that one on a platter for me. You sent me back a smiley face. This happens in the sport. I actually think it's really great because I say as I say it, it's directly linked to the respect for the player. 
You saw the home runs. You know the players involved. What do you think? Oh, man, you're putting me in a tough spot. I'll tell you two things. One, I know that Albert jokingly, I think, told Andrew Friedman before Friday's game, why don't you groove some pitches for me so I can get this done already? And after the game, when he asked what he would say to Phil Bickford after giving up after hitting 700 off him, he said, thanks for hanging the slider. Now, I think he was joking in both of those instances, but I totally agree with you, Buster, that yes, grooving is a part of the sport. Yep. I have no idea if it happened here. Maybe I'm naive, okay? But what I think... I never think it ha- and I'm and I've been proven wrong I'm sure. I never think pitchers are grooving because I think pitchers are just too proud. And I don't think any pitcher wants to be the guy who's on highlight reels for the entirety of his life as giving up the home run that was the milestone home run. Do you think Phil Bickford wants to be the guy who his career is remembered by the fact that he's on the highlight cuz he threw that slider and he hung it to Albert Pujols for 700? I'm not saying it's not possible, and I agree with you. It wouldn't diminish from the accomplishment because he was going to no. probably get to 700 at some point anyway. Um, so I think it's just fun. But I'm going to guess no, just because of the pride and the competitiveness that comes out of these players. Like, I can't imagine a manager being like, hey, why don't you give Albert like a pitch like right over the heart of the plate? I can't. If you're an actual competitor, I can't. I can't imagine like the react. Like, imagine telling Max Scherzer that. Right. Imagine telling Max Scherzer to groove a pitch. <laughs> Actually, I think Max Scherzer would be one of the guys who would do it because he's such really? a great teammate. He's a great baseball guy. Absolutely. Oh, no. uh, you know, and be fun to have that conversation. When we're done, I'm going to tell you a story uh, about something similar happening that's going to make you laugh. It's All really right. cool. I, as I say, I've always loved it. I think it's a I think it's a neat feature. Uh, before you go, uh, give me uh, 90 seconds on the state of the Dodgers bullpen. Uh, and uh, where you think the Dodgers are as they go into a postseason in which, let's face it, if they uh, don't win the World Series, I think they're going to view it as a bust. It's not. I'll give you it not just on the bullpen, but on the pitching staff as a whole. And I think it's really fascinating in that I've never seen a team who has dominated a regular season who comes into the postseason with such real tangible questions about their pitching. Because this is going to be a patchwork job with their pitching staff the entire postseason. They're going to get very creative. You're going to see, as you touched on with the bullpen, the ninth inning is going to be by committee. Craig Kimbrell's not going to be their closer, but also Blake Trinan, their guy who they love to pitch multiple innings, throw, be a bridge to the closer. He's a huge question mark going into it. So it's going to be a guessing game as to who's pitching high leverage, I think, on any given night. But also with their starters. I think the only locks their pitching staff right now are Julio Urias and Clayton Kershaw starting games. And I think everything else is um, up to matchups, up to how guys are feeling. I think you're going to see guys like Tyler Anderson and Dustin May, maybe even Tony Gonsolin, uh, pitching some sort of piggyback roles. I think you'll see guys in tandem. You'll see openers. They're going to get incredible. The Dodgers always get creative with their pitching usage. I think this postseason is primed for them doing things very unconventionally with their pitching staff. I actually talked to Andrew Friedman about this on Saturday. I said, can you sustain that? over the course of an entire postseason. His response to me was, we did it in 2020. And you know what? They did. They got they got uh, a little unconventional with their usage of Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin. And then, remember, they used Julio Rios to pitch the ninth inning instead of Kenley Jansen on some occasions, including when they closed it out. They think they can do it, but they're not going to trot out a pitching staff like the Mets, where you have Scherzer and DeGrom, and you have Edwin Diaz for three-plus outs in the back end. That's just not how it's going to look. All right, sir. 
Well, I can't wait to tell you this story. By the way, uh, interestingly about the Dodgers, uh, to me, you know, when you look at the staff and how you use guys, the guy who's best suited to start in their rotation is Kershaw. The be- guy who's best suited to close, you mentioned Arias, is the best closer they have on their roster, in my opinion. And I keep going back to that. Are they going to be tempted to use Urias as a closer? The problem is he's been such a good starting pitcher for them that they need him. But I think the temptation will be real to use Urias in the back end, especially if their current relievers begin to struggle. Sounds like a story. You know, you could reach out to Rachel and, <laughs> uh, you know, kick that around. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Buster. Bleacher Tweets. Okay, Buster, it's time for Bleacher Tweets. Our first one comes from Corey Record. We got to be honest. Hemba was closer than we expected with the pool host passing Ruth hot take at the beginning of the season. Yeah, so uh, there's no doubt about that. And I'm really hoping that he's so busy with the twin girls, you know, midnight feedings, going sleepless, them crying all the time that he doesn't hear this where we acknowledge, yes, Hembo's pick, uh, his prediction about Albert Pools was a lot, lot closer than anybody thought. Good for Hembo. Good for Hembo. The next one also comes from Corey. With Edwin Diaz about to become a free agent, is he bound to break the Chapman RP contract record? I don't know. It's a great question because we've seen – you know, teams sort of zig and zag about how they they like paying relievers. You know, at that time, if you remember, like Aroldis Chapman got a huge contract and uh, Kenley Jansen got a huge contract. And, uh, you know, I think Mark Melanson got a deal that was worth about $50 million. Generally speaking, like I, I think teams haven't felt like they've gotten their, uh, their uh, return on investment on those contracts. And the way the teams look at relievers now, I don't know if there's going to be a team that's going to step up. And I mean, I would expect that he's going to re-sign with the Mets. I think the Mets value him. He's been terrific for them. Uh, but will he get that high? I, I think it's going to be really close. We'll have to wait and see. Our next one comes from Billy Flanagan. I'm going to try one more to get some Garcia love. Only player in MLB this season with 25 HR, 25 SB, and 25 2B. You got to dig that, No. Yeah, you got to dig it, and I apologize. We've been talking a lot about Aaron Judge uh, with the situation chasing, uh, you know, number 61, number 62. But I guess that's, uh, you know, collateral damage. Adolis Garcia not getting the type of attention that he should be getting this year because of what's going on with other teams. If the Rangers climb back up, back up into an, an echelon where they're relevant, we'll have more conversations about him going forward. All right, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Everyone, be sure to submit your questions using hashtag Bleacher Tweets. And if you like what you're listening to, be sure to check us out on YouTube for our Monday segment with Tim, except this week it was with Jeff. So a little bit of a curveball. Yeah, it was a baggage claim Monday. Uh, I taped with Jeff Passon on Monday uh, for the YouTube version. And and for Monday's uh, podcast, we got today's podcast today. So this week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday for the podcast. We hope have to hope that Aaron Judge hits number 61 or 62 uh, sometime in the next two days. Yes? I mean, I want it so bad for him, and I also want it so badly for everyone. He, he's a great guy, and I think a lot of people in baseball are rooting for him to have that. And again, I, I said this on the broadcast on Sunday night. I'll say it again. How cool is it that the, the Maris family 
Uh, the siblings, you know, made that journey to New York all last week, waiting to be there to honor uh, not only Aaron, but also their father. Um, and now I saw images last night. I saw on uh, the Yes Network, Roger Maris Jr. is there. Uh, that, that's really classy. Uh, and uh, it's cool that he's hanging with it. Uh, that's it for today. My thanks to Alden, to Todd, to the great Dan Schulman, to Sarah. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.